Welcome to Copy Time, a podcast series on markets and economies from DBS Group Research. I'm Taimur Beg, Chief Economist, welcoming you to our 64th episode. Today, we will take a look at the global and regional rates and credit market with Neeraj Seth. Neeraj is Managing Director and Head of Asian Fixed Income at BlackRock. He has been with BlackRock for over 14 years, prior to which he also worked at Lehman Brothers and McKinsey. Neeraj, it's been a long time coming. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks a lot, Tamur. Pleasure to be actually on this. I am surprised it took 63 episodes to get on. <laughs> I know, That's indeed. a long but... way. Indeed, indeed. I just can't believe. I think it's a feature of the pandemic. I'm quite sure if we had our normal lives where we both have a lot of travel, this probably would have been even later in the day or, uh, you know, probably would have taken far more iterations to get it going. But with all this remote, I can see you're talking to me from home. I'm at home. Uh, At least we can make it happen. Sounds good. Uh, so, Niraj, of course, I want to do a deep dive on China and Asia with you, given your expertise. But first, uh, let's begin with some global macro, if you will. Um, what's your sense of this strong inflation yet slowing growth nexus that we seem to be in right now? Sure. I do think, Tamil, uh, where we are in the cycle, uh, overall, the backdrop from a global macro perspective does remain strong and supportive. We, we have seen, obviously, post the strong reopening, uh, post-COVID in 2020 and 2021, uh, we started to see some slowdown in terms of growth. We started to see some of the data reflecting that. But I don't think the growth is slowing down too much. It's not falling off the cliff for sure. And then alongside, we have also started to see some uptick in inflation, which, again, you have to look at the supply side versus the demand side. And within that, in the supply side, it's obviously some of the temporary factors which would be, again, linked to the reopening. As you can imagine, the reopening has, hasn't been uh, linear or it also hasn't been uniform globally. So from that standpoint, you still have some of the factors really having implications on the inflation front driven by supply side constraints. So overall, if I think about it from a growth and inflation mix perspective, I still think the, glo- the growth, even though it's slowing down, but it still will be reasonable going into the next year in 22. Inflation, I do think we'll see, see some uptake, a combination of what you would define as the transitory and the persistent inflation. You do have a bit of both, and uh, which obviously gives a slightly higher inflationary backdrop in 22, but I don't think it's anything uh, like an inflation shock to the system that should cause a meaningful shift from a monetary pol- policy path perspective from here. So overall, it's not a bad backdrop. You're seeing good, reasonable growth with some uptick in inflation as we go into next year. So just two issues on that, Niraj. One is the wage dynamic that we're seeing in the context of chronic labor shortages in the West, and not just in the West, even in Singapore, where we live. Uh, we're seeing you know, a bit of a skills mismatch, lots of vacancies, but at the same time, the job seekers are not being able to match with that. And, and this is actually more prevalent in the US than anywhere else, is that you know, there's this pressure on the corporate sector to start raising wages from minimum wage to living wage, all those discussions we're hearing. So in the context of, say, structural, more persistent inflation, do you, do you worry that we might be in the cusp of a bit of a wage price mix? So I do think we should see an uptake or an increase in the average hourly earnings and the wage prices as we go into the next year. But if you again take a step back, I think it's worth highlighting that where we are, 
if we compare it to the pre-pandemic and then the COVID shock, uh, we're still almost 180 basis points below in terms of the participation rate, specifically in U.S., even though it has recovered almost 140 basis points from the bottom we had in April 2020. So the drop was very, very significant. Now, there are a combination of factors, including obviously the, the year what is defined as the great resignation year. There's also obviously all the, the COVID-related benefits which were running. So you haven't seen the participation rate come back all the way where a lot of the job openings have been going up. I do think going into the next year, the participation rate should pick up further, which means it's not going to be all the stretch on the labor market that leads to a significant increase in the average hourly earning. But some increase is warranted given the tightness we are seeing in a number of places from a labor market perspective. And the fact is uh, the COVID still impacting the borders being somewhat semi-shut, if not completely. I think that has caused some level of uh, stress on the system from the, the ability to actually find labor in different parts of the world. So you would see some of that playing out in, in 2022 with increase in average hourly earnings in the U.S. Right. So related to that issue is that if we're going to see the first sort of nominal expansion of the economy to the point that you're making that you know, wages go up a little bit and maybe some price accommodation, not too big, but you know, encouraging, especially when you look in the context of all the losses that we've had in the last couple of years. But a corollary of that, isn't it also sort of high market valuations that we see in the say US stock market where K-shill or price earnings ratio is basically the same level as it was in 1929 or the very strong sort of leverage loans market we see in the US driven by low interest rates. So wouldn't that party get spoiled even if rates were to go up just a little bit or does, do the rates have to go up a lot before that party gets spoiled? Sure. So I think there are two parts of it. The first is how much do the rates move and how does it move in terms of if you think of the nominal and what is where the break-evens are versus where the real rates are going into next year. And the second is obviously what is happening in the real economy and is it the economic momentum slowing down a lot or is it stabilizing? If I look at both of those in terms of where the rates are, first of all, I don't think the rates move up, up significantly from here. You, we have seen some backup in the nominals over the course of last few months after a fairly narrow range in the summer. Now, given the inflationary backdrop and the growth that we talked about, I think the markets are somewhat repricing the exit from the monetary policy, but I don't think we are going to see a significant shift higher in case of U.S. rates, because again, U.S., when you think of it, obviously the economy is doing fine, but you, when you think of the monetary policy globally and how intertwined the global fixed income markets are, you're still seeing less of an economic momentum in some of the other developed markets. So I think there's certainly a level of correlation and the relative attractiveness that you would see coming into play when you think of the U.S. rates backing up. For credit markets, it's always important where we are in the business and the credit cycle. And I would say we're still in the mid-cycle and not late-cycle post-COVID. So from that standpoint, given where the rates are, given one of the very important themes that we've been talking about, which is the profound need for income and yield, I don't think that we are at the point in the business or the credit cycle where I would be worried about the U.S. credit markets to back up significantly from here. So yeah, you will not see a lot of price appreciation, given where the rates and the spreads are. 
but I think it's more of a carry environment that you are in going into 2022 rather than a negative environment for credit on the back of the move in rates. Yeah, it's a very fair point. You know, the other thing that I think about, which is not really in the context of what we're discussing, but I think it's relevant when we think about risk, is the fact that the U.S. household balance sheets are pretty strong. So when we talk about low rates fueling asset price bubbles and stuff like that, uh, it is not necessarily causing huge amount of risk to accumulate on the households of U.S. balance sheet, at least not yet which was not the case in 2007 when the households were overstretched. So I, I very much am with you on, on the issue that, you know, may not be room for a huge amount of rally, but the environment for a massive crash would have to be prepped by huge rise in interest rates, which I think we both concur is rather unlikely. All right, uh, let's start narrowing our focus, Neeraj. So I'm gonna ask you a few questions on China, if I may. Uh, lots of cross currents there, uh, credit market stress, regulatory crackdown, power shortage, coronavirus outbreak here and there, wide range of friction with the US, which has been going on for half a decade or longer now. Uh, so walk us through, I mean, when we look at so many currents in place, uh, some of them probably are offsetting each other as well. What do these things net net mean for the credit and fixed income market in China? Sure. I think that's a that's certainly a complex question. I think the first thing, maybe taking a step back, we need to think about what's really happening in China from a broader top-down perspective before I go into the specific markets. Because obviously the markets are in a way a first derivative of what you're seeing from an overall objective function and how that's playing through the policy shift. <clears throat> so from a top-down perspective, if I look back a number of years now, and think about where we are in the direction of travel. A lot of what we are seeing in case of China from an overall government perspective is built on three fundamental pillars. It's the whole focus on national security, which includes the data security. Second, it includes the stability of the system with focus on deleveraging. And the third is the common prosperity with focus on social stability. And I think those three factors or th those three pillars are the building blocks of the policy making and the shifts we are actually seeing in terms of what's really happening. Now, coming back to maybe more specific markets and the regulatory angle, we've seen obviously a lot of regulatory tightening and a lot of it, in fact, started not in 2020. In fact, it goes back to 2015 and 2016 when we had the first phase of deleveraging with the focus on the financial sector itself where there was a lot of uh, focus on creating more financial stability in the system through deleveraging of the financial sector. And that started in 2016, went all the way to the fall of 2018 till the time when the financial conditions started to tighten a fair bit because it did coincide with the Fed tightening back in 2018. And at that point, we did see a pause in that push. And then we stayed with that pause for almost two years. Phase two, as we were coming out of COVID, China was the first, first in, first out. Clearly, the strength of the economy by, by third quarter last year was fairly evident. And the focus came back alongside other factors around geopolitics and everything. The focus did come back on the deleveraging stability of the system, common prosperity and themes around that, which led to the second round of the regulatory tightening that we are seeing in the last 14 months. Now, you've seen, obviously, the implication of that on the technology, education, and other sectors, as well as the deleveraging focus on the combination of real estate, as well as the 
state linked enterprises where there is clearly an intention from a long term perspective to remove that concept of implicit guarantees the moral hazard issues and have better pricing of risk so all of this is happening at the time when obviously you still have other constraints that have started to show up including some of the the delta variant issues the floods the energy sector crisis uh, obviously impacting the supply chains and the stresses in the real estate markets so i think overall a lot of different factors in play but when i bring it try to bring it back together and think of the growth inflation policy mix and how to think about it looking forward i do think the growth certainly is moderating it's not falling off the cliff but it's certainly slowing we saw the growth data last uh, about a week or so back at 4.9% year on year the inflation had an interesting mix of uh, 26 year high on ppi but cpi is still looking fine but benign uh with potential path for convergence between the two over a uh, next 6 to 9 month horizon and then i think the regulatory policy where we have started to see some respite in the recent weeks with focus on more stabilization rather than more tightening so when you think of that backdrop i would say overall i still remain fairly positive on the china onshore government bond market even though we can see some backup in yields given by given the combination of what's happening in the global markets as well as repricing of the expectation of easing which might take longer than what markets were expecting and i do think selectively you see a lot of opportunities in the onshore credit markets as well as to some extent in the offshore credit market so a lot to chew on but i'll pause here so that we can maybe take more specific directions yeah so okay one very sort of current conjunctural one which is yes you're right that in you know, our last week's gdp data was you know on the downside relative to expectations and we are seeing the risks manifest in real time with respect to supply chain disruptions and power shortages some of it is policy driven some of it is exogenous um but the market's interpretation on china at this moment is actually rather constructive we're seeing the rmb appreciate copper prices which i think of as a very useful leading indicator of china's overall industrial production capacity or demand is doing very well uh, we have not seen any major uh, uh, you know sign of volatility as far as capital flows are concerned uh, overall capital flows um, so the market seem to be completely um, you know sort of leaving behind the the current data flow and the news flow and and looking forward to a rather brighter past uh, what what's your sense of that Sure. So I think there are a few factors here. The first is overall again looking at the attractiveness of the onshore markets, which is what drives the capital flow. So when you look at the China government bond market, the nominal yield, the real rates, the direction of monetary policy still gives you a reason to be actually taking more of a long position there from a for long term investors. So I don't think that case has changed, and it's also coming alongside further inclusion from the index standpoint. So. certainly that the flow backdrop i don't see has any reason to be to be negative here it can obviously see a pause at times when markets get worried about geopolitics or even the policy side but i think the medium to long term trajectory is still positive there on the currency front it has been interesting tamur i must say the currency has in fact uh, from a cfets basket perspective has been appreciating if you look at the cross the fx rates or fx exchanges across various different currencies or cny versus euro or korean won japanese yen 
has actually been interesting this year with a fair bit of strength and relative stability against the dollar. So that's again a policy kind of uh, backdrop of a stable currency mix that the regulators have been focused on. And hence, from that standpoint, uh, the markets are looking through some near-term repricing or near-term noise that could be there. And overall, macroeconomic to stay on the stable path with some policy easing to come down the road. So I think that's the broad, at least, way I would think about it uh, in the next 6 to 12 months. Very interesting. Now, Iraj, I'll share with you one macro structural insight that uh, my team has been sort of working on which is, you know, we have a fair value model of exchange rates based on medium term fundamentals. And China, if you look at the last 10, 12 years, the real per capita income growth has been so substantial, which, you know, a lot of these fair valuation models are proxy for productivity growth, that all these models consistently say the currency remains undervalued and there's room for appreciation. Uh, I mean, not like the way it used to be 15 years ago, but still modest room. Uh, so, so to me, even like a nerdy way of looking at the currency beyond just the day-to-day market fluctuations seem to suggest that, you know, the currency ought to be doing fine. Of course, you know, geopolitics and all those news can create noises, but that's not, you know, relevant to this thing. Um, you guys, one, I was struck by one phrase that you used that, you know, China being the first in, first out. You know, I can apply that phrase for China in the context of the pandemic when they reacted to the 2007-2008 crisis, that although it was a crisis made in the West, PBOC seemed to be way ahead of the Western counterparts in terms of seeing the gravity of the situation. And even in this crisis, you know, with respect to both easing as the pandemic <clears throat> broke out and then becoming neutral as the pandemic was sort of running its course, the China has been, Chinese have been sort of ahead of the curve. Do you, do you concur with that, that, that first in, first out is not just in one place, but in a number of cases we have seen? I would agree with that. In fact, uh, even the policy reaction function, even though has been different, but it has been more suited to what the environment was back in 2008 crisis versus in 2020 pandemic. So I think they we have seen obviously uh, a more prudent policy making and the reaction function from PBOC over the last 15 years. Absolutely. Uh, one final point on, on what you were talking about uh, with respect to the overall sort of, you know, dynamic of how the market sees the policy mix. Um, It may not be constructive for growth in a very narrow sense that, you know, if you're taking strong regulatory action on tech or education, their uh, shareholders see some value erosion. But from a best practice perspective, if these regulatory actions are laying the ground for a more sustainable economic model, then one doesn't have to be necessarily uh, bearish. Um, am I being, you know, too dismissive of the near-term risks or is that something that makes sense to you? No, I think it absolutely does make sense. Obviously, the policy uncertainties in the near term do pose some risk on the downside. And whether it's in terms of technology, education, uh, real estate sector, all all of these policies have, uh, call it a side effect that comes with it. Uh, But if you step back and think about a number of the policies, they are very much geared towards a longer term stability and a sustainable growth model. So I think there's certainly some near term pain that's uh, that's always the focus of the markets. Then a lot of times when you're sitting in the middle of a correction, it's like fog in front of your head in, or, or when you're driving. It's very hard to see through the fog. Right. And that's basically the fog we are sitting in this correction right now driven by these policy shifts. The question is, what's 
beyond that. And I think that's that's the part where you are right, that there is certainly a focus on longer-term sustainable growth path. Okay, so the near-term pain, let's just uh, focus on that a little bit. Uh, so what's your sense of China's financial sector's shock absorption capacity? If we are going to see these near-term pain, what is the impact on the financial sector? So overall, if you think of the, first of all, the financial sector, it's important to understand how what's the structure of that financial sector is. So unlike a lot of the Western economies, when you think about China, I think about the banking system certainly has a close linkage to the fiscal policy. And it also has obviously a close linkage to government in terms of the ownership structure. So there's certainly a lot of focus from PBOC in terms of making sure that you have ample liquidity in the system to keep the financial sector on a stable path. When you look at more specifically the banks, the banks from a capital ratios perspective, as well as in terms of where the NPLs are and the provisioning is, they are in a relatively healthy state. So I don't really see a lot of risk necessarily for the financial sector, which is coming out of these uh, regulatory tightening of policies. Uh, you do see maybe some risk, which is more macroeconomic and the, and the growth impact, depending on how some of these policies impact, whether it's the CapEx, the current the, the, the investments, the overall fixed asset investment, or uh, the demand for certain specific, you know, whether it's commodities or for real estate. So you do have a potential macroeconomic impact, but I think the financial sector is in a in a reasonably healthy state to actually to absorb any of the shocks coming from it. And um, you have already spoken about sort of your largely constructive view on the government bond market, but what sort of you know metrics should global investors use when they look at the corporate credit market in the context of what's going on right now? Sure. So first of all, when you think of the corporate credit markets uh, with regards to China, you have two different markets. You have the U.S. dollar denominated market and you have the onshore credit market. Now, the onshore credit market is obviously much bigger in size. So it's north of seven trillion U.S. dollars equivalent, but has much, much lower participation rate from the foreign investors relative to what they have in government bond markets or what the global investors have exposures in the dollar or the hard currency credit markets. So the onshore markets still are, in terms of the actual development, still relatively nascent, but in terms of size, reasonably big. Uh, and have, as I said, very small foreign participation. It's less than 1% today uh, of foreign ownership in the onshore credit markets. I think there, we still like the higher quality part of that market. I do think combination of your rates view plus obviously uh, the carry from the higher quality names, uh, it still gives you, alongside your point about the stability of the currency, gives you a reasonable, obviously, uh, income and carry from that perspective. In terms of the offshore bond market, obviously, overall bond market has had uh, a tough year this year since the beginning, driven by the regulatory tightening. And I would say in credit, more specifically, it was to do with the China real estate sector, where we have seen the stress is emerging in terms of some of the names over the course of last six months. And I think there it's a combination of obviously some level of the security selection, diversification and resilience one needs to build in the portfolio, as well as your view around the shift 
not a turn, but a shift in policy that one would expect looking forward in the next three to six months, which will actually define how that evolves in the coming year. Yes, I want to stay with that uh, real estate and policy uh, issue a little longer. Um, now, property-related activities in China is almost 29, 30% of GDP. Uh, and it's been a huge source of wealth creation uh, and, and, and overall activity. Now we hear phrases like, you know, property is for living, not for speculation, which seems to suggest that the authorities don't want uh, so much capital to be, you know, concentrated on the property side, they see it as risky. But if property and construction is not going to drive growth, if um, the private education market is not going to be a very big source of growth, uh, if tech companies uh, will see some of their, you know, parts of their wings clip, uh, where will economic growth come from for China in the years and decades ahead? Sure. I think that's a very good question, Tamur. In fact, I should be asking you that question. You being the economist here, I'm a market uh, participant, I'm an investor. So, but I, I'll give you my, my view on that. I do think structurally, if you take a longer horizon, uh, the growth can and probably will slow down in China by just by, by virtue of obviously these sources of growth or the growth drivers, as well as the demographics. And I think one of the, the largest driver of growth anywhere in the world is demographics. And given productivity is what it is, and you would know that better than I do, I think that that growth slowdown, I don't think is an issue. It's more a question of what's the quality of growth rather than just the quantity of growth looking forward. And then more specifically, when you think about these sectors and the implication of slowdown in the sector, again, structurally, if I look at the demand for housing, the urbanization rate, the replacement versus the household formation driving the demand, uh, I think we've we did start to see some uh, stabilization rather than a very high growth in that demand-driven side on real estate in the last few years, which potentially will continue in the next five to 10 years, which means that the incremental contribution to the GDP growth will be lower. Uh, and with some of the downside risk in the next couple of years from the regulatory perspective that are, that are there. But on the other hand, consumption, given the savings rate remains high, is still a source that can obviously be more prominent the net export should be adding more to the growth or will continue to add to the growth looking forward. And lastly, I would say the infrastructure spending, which still has more to go, and with a very big area of focus being sustainability. I think that's certainly another big driver of growth for at least next uh, five to 10 years as the world and China move towards the commitment of net zero. I think that still requires a significant amount of infrastructure investment in every single country I can think of in this world. Absolutely. Um, Niraj, a few podcasts ago, I spoke with uh, Dr. Ma Jun, who represents China in the G20 on climate change. And during the course of the podcast, he gave me a number, which I was convinced was a mistake, because he said that he thinks over the next 40 years, China should spend 500 trillion RMB. So I was con convinced that he got a zero wrong or something bad, because that's like, 70 trillion US dollars, like 10% of GDP every year. But he wasn't talking about public sector spending. He was talking mm -hmm. about just the transition required, required from both public and private sector would probably entail extremely large chunk of resources for alternative energy, for urban grid uh, rejuvenation, the transportation sector being completely rejigged. 
And uh, and I, I came away thinking that, you know, next time, you know, somebody reverses the question to me and say where the growth will come from, I'll give you that exact answer that, you know, just as you said at the very end, sustainability is a big area of fixed asset investment for China for years and decades to come. Uh, all right. Um, one question that I sort of have, um, rather a concern than a question is, China is so large and it has benefited, of course, tremendously from having this Hong Kong financial sector right next to it, you know, well-developed, strong rule of law, a lot of fundraising uh, taking place there. Uh, but are we at a part in our financial history where stress in China markets spill over into Hong Kong financial markets? So overall, I don't think so, but I can focus maybe a bit more on the debt capital markets there. And I think there, first of all, Hong Kong on the debt side is not that big a market that we look at. And on the government bond side, uh, given the policy framework still has a high correlation to what you're seeing happening in terms of monetary policy in the US. Uh, so overall, I don't think it's necessary that I would worry about that spillover, but I do think obviously uh, some of these things will evolve as we go forward. So I don't think I can have a lot more specifics on that time. And any, any risk on Singapore debt market from China stress? I don't think so. I think Singapore, obviously, when you think about the markets, again, you have a much more of a domestic market. You have obviously a number, number of regional global banks who also issue in this market in Sing dollars. Now, the government bond market, again, is fairly stable in terms of where it is. So I think the overall markets, debt markets in Singapore are on a fairly stable footing. So I don't see any of the stresses actually uh, spilling over into this market here. Great. Okay. So uh, since we are beginning to talk about rest of Asia, uh, let's talk about a couple of countries in the region and their outlook. Uh, some interesting stuff going on. I mean, countries like Bank of Korea, you know, thinking about, you know, tightening monetary policy or the likes of Thailand still in difficulties. So Niraj, let's divide the region into two groups, the low yielders and the high yielders. So first with the low yielders, uh, Korea and Thailand, some views? Sure. So I think overall, both of those markets certainly have started to look interesting and attractive. And when I look at the potential growth, the demographic profile, the future trajectory of monetary policy and the terminal rate, and starting with Korea, I think the markets are pricing in higher than what I would say it should be. But at this point, given to some extent the combination of the hawkishness of Bank of Korea, as well as the correlations to the developed market core rates, specifically the US, uh, you want to actually be mindful of that and respectful, but I think it's certainly a market which has started to look attractive from a longer term perspective. And given how much of that uh, the rate hikes are getting priced in, we we do like the short end of the curve in Korea and not yet taking a lot of duration given the other factors that I mentioned. Uh, Thailand, I think it's certainly, again, a market which looks interesting and attractive at these levels. I think question of obviously what the reopening looks like, what the the overall kind of fiscal push is, the economic momentum looking forward. But looking at some of the constraints we are still living with, and maybe my views might get a little more biased with the constraints. I do think uh, the rates in Thailand look attractive. And at these levels, obviously, it's a market which is worth spending more time on. Great. Um, okay, I'm going to talk about high yielders momentarily, but there's one high yielder that we never talked about because their access to, uh, or foreign investors' access to them has been you know, a bit complicated, is uh, Vietnam. Uh, what's your sense? I mean, on one hand, you know, they are getting a lot of headline. 
from global investors, FDI, China Light, and all that stuff. Uh, but from a financial market development perspective, it's still not quite up there with the rest of Asia. Uh, are you sort of getting interested in the Vietnam market? So we certainly look at that market very closely. But in fact, to your point, what you touched on, the whole focus on rejigging of supply chains, Vietnam coming up as obviously one of the credible locations where we've seen some of that move of supply chain, the FDI, the growth. I would say Vietnam is a very interesting equity story to me. I'm not sure if I'm really convinced that it's a great uh, credit or a fixed income story as yet. And obviously, uh, if you do continue to see uh, the flows, the FDIs to increase, in fact, the risk you run is maybe of higher inflation down the road, uh, which again is not something that you want to be sitting in front of as a fixed income investor. That's right. Uh, you know, I mean, it, this is the risk of being a victim of their own success. There is so much demand for skilled labor in Vietnam, and there's so much money going into building factories that labor cost, uh, which used to be a major advantage of Vietnam, is, is going to become an issue uh, inevitably. All right. High yielders that are really exciting these days, India and Indonesia. So I think both both are very interesting. Overall, we do like Indonesia more than India right now, just a combination of obviously a stable monetary policy, high nominal rates, uh, high real rates. The inflation, in fact, has been running slightly below the, the central bank's midpoint of the target. And uh, the stability of the Indonesian rupiah, which certainly is a big part of the focus from a central bank's perspective. So in, in, the, in an environment where you have a stable currency, I think the overall carry from Indonesia from a government bond perspective looks actually quite interesting. There have also been obviously focus areas and changes on some of the, the fiscal side from the overall reforms perspective, which I think is going to be positive looking forward. So it certainly... Obviously, the market has been very stable uh, if I look at the Indonesian government bond market. So I do think it still remains uh, an attractive market for global investors. India, on the other hand, has, I would say I have mixed views and mixed feelings here. Obviously, you have seen some backup in the yields driven by a combination of the, the asset purchases from RBI as well as the increase in inflation. And oil price is one thing which does play through the inflation outlook in India very clearly. And with the deregulation in the oil prices or the gasoline prices onshore, you're seeing a meaningful uptick in the gas prices on the pump. So I think you are at a juncture where you have some of those concerns. But on the positive side, I think the markets are overpricing, in my view, in terms of the hikes from the RBI in the next 12 months. I think it's certainly getting a bit stretched. And the other thing which is a positive is uh, there's certainly a lot more debate going on now about the bond inclusion and some of the last mile parts left around euro clearability and other factors. And I think once that happens, that should provide some supportive backdrop for the Indian government bonds here. So I think we're looking certainly at it very closely. I can't say right now immediately very bullish, but I think obviously overall looking at the inflation trajectory versus the, the flow backdrop, it's getting to interesting levels. So there's one general question. Uh, in the last 30, 40 years, every time the U.S. has gone through even a mild monetary tightening cycle, it has been very disruptive for emerging markets. So earlier you talked about how you don't think 
US fixed income market is particularly vulnerable to a rate cycle. You also seem to be rather constructive about China in the sense that the, the shock absorptive capacity of the financial sector is substantial. But what about EMX, uh, EM Asia X China uh, as rates go up or taper takes place? I mean, all these countries that you talked about, they'll be all right? I, I would think so. And part of the reason is if I look at where the policy is in the US relative to the growth and inflation backdrop, I think the policy is somewhat lagging. So if you compare it to any other historical cycle, by now you would be in the midst of the rate hikes. We are still at the front end of, in fact, the tapering yet to start. And it's going to start in December, will potentially go till sometime in July. And what tapering means is it's going to be still liquidity injection, but less so. And it has been very, very well communicated and telegraphed by the Fed over the course of last six to nine months that tapering is coming. So to some extent, that level of the policy in terms of where it is, the level of communication that we are seeing, I am not really concerned about tapering being a disruptive uh, backdrop for the markets. I think the question you asked about the tightening, I think that's valid and that's something we'll have to be mindful of as we go into the next year in terms of how much of tightening gets priced in, how much of a move do we see in terms of the nominal versus the real rates versus break-evens and what does it mean for the US dollar? So if you do, end of the day, I think if you do uh, get a strength in dollar or a strong bid for the dollar, that's one of the factors that has been negative for emerging Asia or emerging markets in general. But in absence of that, if you get the nominal backing up a little bit, not a huge shift in the real rates and dollar that remains stable, it's not a bad backdrop alongside the growth that we are seeing globally for the emerging markets. In the 1990s, uh, when the tequila crisis happened and then the Asian crisis happened, uh, Guillermo Calvo uh, wrote a series of papers where he argued that from a global portfolio manager's perspective, if there is stress in one part of EM, he is likely to sell all of EM just from a rebalancing perspective. Now, uh, I'm with you in terms of Asia's risk being not as high, but when I scan the whole world, I look at South Africa, Brazil, Venezuela, Turkey, Lebanon, and in our own backyard, Sri Lanka, there's a lot of sovereign stress building up and it's likely to get worse in 2021, 2022. Um, will stress in those cases spill over into Asia? So my base case is that less so. Some of it will, obviously you cannot completely be out of the linkages between the emerging markets. And specifically when you think about the flows, uh, from an emerging market perspective, you do see some level of correlation of emerging Asia with the rest of EM. But I think what has been changing is one, the overall stability of Asia in terms of the macroeconomic and the fundamental perspective. And the second is, to some extent, the linkage with China and the stability of China. So if you do see a stable China, I would say you would see less of a stress building up in emerging Asia alongside that. Right. And, and since many of those risky non-Asia emerging markets that I talked about are commodity exporters, a stable channel will be good for them too, particularly Brazil. Um, Iraj, I want to end with our home market, Singapore. Uh, lots going on. The LIBOR to SOFR transition, the Singapore market, there's a lot of talk and action these days on climate-related bonds being issued. So just a few words on the fixed income scene in Singapore, both from a cyclical perspective as sort of, you know, curve steepen and Fed rate hike it takes place, and also where this market is heading in terms of depth 
and breath. Sure. So I think overall, in case of Singapore, again, as we start going into 22 with the vaccination rates where they are and the reopening of the economy, I do think the, eco the economic fundamentals start to actually look better as we look forward. So certainly, I do have a positive view on going into 22 on the Singapore economy. And on the back of it, I do think we will continue to see uh, stable to maybe a marginally tighten, tighter policy alongside what we see in the, in the US. So I think that is what will play out in the next one to two years in case of Singapore. So I think overall, a reasonable backdrop. And lastly, I think looking at where we are, I also that from that angle, like uh, the currency, which actually looks uh, potentially more on a stable path from here. That's, that's good to hear. All right, uh, Niraj, I think uh, we've covered a pretty uh, comprehensive base. So I really, really appreciate your insights. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Great, thanks a lot. Great to have you. Uh, thanks also to our listeners. Uh, Kobe Time was produced by Martin Taki. Daisy Sharma and Violet Lee provided additional assistance. It is for information only and does not represent any trade advice. All 64 episodes of Kobe Time are now available on YouTube as well as on all major podcast platforms, including Apple, Google, and Spotify. As for our research publications, webinars, and live streams, you can find them all by Googling DBS Research Library. Have a great day.